This is Transistor.fm. Welcome to the Product People Show. Happy Thursday. My name is Justin Jackson. I'm the host, and I'm glad you're here. I'm glad you're listening to this right now, wherever you are, whether you're in the gym or most likely you are in your car listening to this, maybe headed to work or headed home. And if you're like me, you like building stuff, you like making stuff, and you dream at night about building and launching your own products. Well, today's interview is with Mr. Onboard himself, Samuel Hulick of useronboard.com. You've probably seen his onboarding teardowns. Uh, he's done them for Instagram and he's done them for Slack. And we talked about the experience of onboarding a user for the first time and how important it is, and how it's often the thing that we tack on to the end of a project instead of baking it into the whole product itself. You are going to love this episode. He is a super interesting guy with lots of great things to say. So let's take it away. Let's go and talk to Samuel. Jackson, and I am here with Samuel Hulick of Portland, Oregon, and the creator, the the host, the what else are, could we say of useronboard.com. How's it going, Sam? It's good. How are you? I'm doing I'm doing well, except for these technical issues. But I think we're just going to go. We're going to forge ahead. Yeah. And have a great discussion. I've We've uh, met in person a couple times, which has been fun. This is true. And we were aware of each other on the internet before that. For people that are not familiar with useronboard.com, what is that? It is a website that wherein I post teardowns, uh, which are annotated slideshows of popular web apps' first-run experiences. So what it's like to sign up for Netflix, what it's like to sign up for Basecamp, so on and so forth. Uh, maybe mixing in some some wry commentary as I go. And everybody that hears about this idea thinks, why on earth did I not think, <laughs> think of this idea? How did you think of doing these kind of teardowns? Sure. Uh, well, I decided I wanted to write a book, and I put up a landing page with a sign-up form to sign up for the email list for the book. And I was like, oh, but then I have to get people to go to this page. What am, how am I going to solve that problem? Um, and so I thought about guest posting, but it, that sounded very hit or miss by a lot of, like, even people who are like, you know, you can spend, like, 15 hours on it to do a really awesome job and get three email sign-ups or something like that. I was like, oh, well, that sounds horrible, so what, what else could I do? And being a UX 
consultant and designer um, at the time, I had a pile of products that I had gone through and basically as part of a, a, a user experience design um, uh, project, I would a lot of times go through and just mark up screens and say, you know, this looks like this could be working better or I would swap this with this or things along those lines or change the wording on this button, stuff like that. And I was like, oh, if, if only I, like, I bet people would find those valuable if I just posted one of those. But then I thought the people who paid me to do those probably would not want me to post them uh, without their permission, especially. And so I thought, well, uh, of the of all the companies that I have reviewed, there are untold thousands more companies that I haven't who haven't paid me to do it because they don't even know who I am. Why don't I just pick one and just put it out there and see what happens? And so that was kind of the genesis of it. Now, how did you know that onboarding was going to be a good niche? Because it's, tur it's turned out that... You know, when people think about onboarding, a lot of people are starting to think of you. You've become uh, a domain expert there. Right. So yeah, what, I, I, what made I, you think of that niche in the first place? I, I would say there's there's a saying, uh, even a blind squirrel will find a nut every once in a while. Um, I uh, I did I kind of just walked into it by accident, and and then all of a sudden I was like, oh oh, this makes a lot of sense for a bunch of reasons. But um, yeah, the 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 book that I put the teardowns out to send people to the sign-up page to sign up for was initially not even going to be about onboarding. It was going to be about this kind of esoteric philosophical concept of aligning your company's success with your users' success and things that I really believe in, but it was a book that I wanted to write because I wanted to get the message out and not a book that people were demanding because it was a problem that they were uh, recognizing they had. So after seeing how the teardown started performing, I was like, oh, this onboarding thing. This is, this, is, this is what people call the problem that I want to help people solve. Yeah. And what do you think, you know, so many people are looking for that, that idea. Uh, and what do you think your advice is, given that, <laughs> you know, you feel like you kind of walked into it? What, you know, Rob Walling has that saying, it's not even his, but he always says, uh, the harder I work, the luckier I get. Sure. Uh, were, were there things that you were doing before that, before you discovered this idea that you think eventually led you to this idea? Um, it's hard to say. I mean, I would feel, I felt like for the last several years where I was like, I have, I have these insights and things to say that I want to share and just nobody was really listening. Because I think, you know, in a lot of ways I was just one of thousands of, you know, a, a UX dude with an opinion, basically. Um, and so looking at something where there aren't really a lot of, there wasn't frankly a lot of people in this space to begin with um, really helped. And so it, I think picking something that has sort of the that blue ocean strategy, so to speak, of like going out to the, like the area where there isn't a lot of competition can certainly help or just lower the bar of being able to be perceived as, uh, you know, the blank guy or, or, or woman. Um, but uh, yeah, as far as, as far as identifying what that niche is, um, it took me a really, really long time and, and eventually just kind of backed into it. So once I, once I realized onboarding was a thing, there was a lot in my background that made it really obvious that it was a good, good um, space for me to be in because uh, I, I've always had like kind of a user experience, customer insights side to me, um, as well as wanting to be really uh, scientific and measuring the impact of what you know, those insights will bring. So we, let's say we go and do a pass on a sign-up form or something like that 
well, did it work out better? Did it create more signups that, you know, took less time to sign up? And then did those people tend to stick around longer, you know, or, or make it all the way through their trial? Things like that. And so measuring the or combining the qualitative with the quantitative has always really been um, a big, big priority for me. And something where if somebody's just kind of hiring you to sprinkle UX on top of their product and just kind of make it friendlier or nicer wasn't really a concern. But when you call it onboarding, it's like, oh, of course, that totally comes baked in. You would need to look at both. So it was really helpful from that standpoint. Now, have you known for a long time that onboarding is what you wanted to focus on professionally? Um, I, I would say that I have long um, held a, a mentality um, that I didn't really know what label to put on it or what to call it. And so really for me it was just a matter of being able to be like, oh, so all of this stuff that I want to share and want to accomplish, if I call it this, then I get that's, that's, the, that's the area of overlap in the Venn diagram of everything that I'm interested in. Yeah. Uh, but uh, my, my friend Jane Portman has an analogy that I use all the time, which is like having your suitcase packed but no handle on it. Like it's just you can't use it to get anywhere, you know. And as soon as you can put that handle on it, then all of a sudden it becomes so much more useful. And so I, I feel like I had a, a, a full suitcase with no handle for a very long time and then eventually realized onboarding was that handle. So now you've done it. You've created a following online about a, a topic you're passionate about. And now you've built your first product for people that are starting out, what kind of advice would you give them? How can they do what you did? So I think that the to to, to find a, a repeatable way to save yourself five years of toiling in obscurity like I did, um, I think that the two things that really come to mind are, one, it was the first time that I ever, like I decided to write a book, which is really different than just writing blog posts, which is like, here's this thing that I've been thinking about or whatever. Like you really have to force yourself to go through the process of, you know, how can I even make something that's like uh, the remotely credible claim of expertise on on, on a subject? Um, and so that really forces you to kind of uh, make some make some decisions about like what am I going to call this? Where am I going to position myself? Things like that. And so if I it hadn't been that, I don't think I would have been forced to really pick a specific niche and and go after it. So there there's that one thing, and then the other thing that comes to mind is. Um, looking at, I can't remember, somewhere in the Rob Walling, Nathan Berry, Brennan Dunn continuum, uh, somebody said, like, uh, the, the whole, or Patrick, maybe it was even Patrick McKenzie, but, like, uh, people feel like, well, I'm not an expert enough to write, you know, about this as a, as an, uh, you know, with authority or things like that. Um, and somebody in there said, if people are paying you to do it as a consultant or as a contributor, like a designer developer, then that is a strong enough signal that people are struggling with it and will pay to have you help educate them on how to do it themselves. And so um, that's something that I would really look at as well. Yeah, yeah, I like that that idea of um, if you're already being hired to do it, if you're already consulting with that, uh, it's that's probably enough if you've already made money doing it professionally. Yeah, and don't forget too that, I mean, if you've been doing it for, I mean, I've been in the web space for 10 years and I've been doing UX full-time for five and, like, there's a lot that you picked up in, in year one or even the first three or six months that just seems like, you know, unspeakably boring and obvious to you now. Uh, and those are really the areas where when somebody's really got an itch to start learning something, that's probably the level that they're at. And so you can really speak very credibly about that kind of stuff. Yes, yes. And that's we always forget about those, don't we? Yeah, yeah. I mean, if anything, if you feel like, 
I like the idea almost of like picking something that maybe you're not that good at and then just, you know, documenting all the questions that you have as you go through it where th these are all questions that other people will be having and just take six months and just do a lot of research and get a, you know, get to be like a C-level good at it. Not C like, uh, like grade, not like C like executive. Yeah. Um, but, you know, and just basically say, hey, I just spent six months researching this thing. If you don't want to spend six months, you can spend $40 or whatever. Yeah. Now let's talk about the development of your book. Okay. So you're, you're doing these teardowns, and uh, they're becoming popular. You're, you're growing your mailing list, I'm guessing, at the same time. Uh, that is correct, yeah, yep. And at what point, because you said you, wanted, you started with the idea of doing a book, at what point did you say, okay, I'm going to scratch that idea and do a book on onboarding? When did you know that this was a good enough idea to do that? Well, let's see. Interestingly, from um, your campfire group, someone in there recommended that he was like, you know, these teardowns are really useful. And that was actually something that stood out to me too, was like even back then when I would write a blog post and it would happen to get read by, you know, a, a small minority of people and, and then somebody would say, hey, I liked what you wrote or whatever. It was always, you know, I liked this or I agree with this. But with the teardowns, it was the first time that people said, this was really helpful or this was really useful. And so looking at that, I think that that's a real, you know, difference. Um, in, in the value that you're providing. So, yeah, that's um, a strong signal if people are saying, this is really helpful. Yeah, yeah. So somebody in the, in the, in the uh, I guess, was it the, the product people campfire room? Yeah. or Yeah. Um, said, I think Luke was his name, so was like, you know, you should just create a site where you do these teardowns because I was just posting them to SlideShare and embedding them in my blog at the, at, you know, to begin with. He's like, you should just get, like, you know, useronboarding.io and, and just host them there as its own entity. And I think that would really work. And I was like, hey, yeah, that sounds like a good idea. And so uh, I think that domain was taken, but I got useronboard.com and, you know, took a weekend and just, you know, did another couple of teardowns and then posted, I think, four of them at the same time on the site. And, um, yeah, things just kind of kind of went, uh, went really well from there. And so at what point did you say, okay, this is going well, I uh -huh. should create a product for this. Why did you know? When did that happen? And why did you choose a book? Right. I, so the the question that I did not answer. <laughs> um, so I decided from the get go I wasn't going to write a book until I got up to a certain threshold of subscribers, or at least tr did my best to get that far, and then see what would happen if I didn't or whatever. And so the number that I always had in mind was three thousand. Um, that I would basically say, hey, I'm I'm writing this book and I'm in the process of doing it, but I'm you know not actually start writing it until I got to 3,000 because then hopefully I'd be at like five to 7,000 by the time that I, the book was done and I was ready to launch. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, I basically had had the name of a book in like, you know, I just typed like customer growth, which was the name of the original idea and then like put it in like book shape and then a sign up kind of form underneath it on the landing page. Um, and so as far as like deciding to switch from one to the other, it was really, I mean, basically, as simple as just changing the the name of the book to "It's about customer growth" to "It's about user onboarding," and then you know, and then just kind of doing everything that I could to to build up that audience to the point where I was like, okay, this is a real thing that's going to have real customers. I should I should pull the trigger on this and start really writing in earnest. And so, I like that because you you had a a lot of people ask me that question um, specifically about mailing lists. You know, at what point should you um, how big of a list should you have before you start thinking about doing a product? And for yeah. you, that was that was three thousand. Um, 
and very unscientific, by the way. I, that was I, I'm not saying three thousand is the number. You get that? You're good. Tell told you to say, tell them Samuel Hewitt said so. <laughs> Uh, that was just the number that I internally came up with, so uh, and it, it wound up working out pretty well for me. But you know, yeah, that could change. I've I've often said I think a thousand is a good number, but it really depends on the audience and it mm. depends on what your goals are. It depends on what you're selling, all of those kinds of things. Yeah, uh, but at a thousand, you know, you could have you know anywhere from a two to ten percent conversion rate. Uh, and that would be pretty good for a lot of products, especially if it's your first product. Um, okay, so you you get the idea for the book, you start uh, you start writing it as soon as you get three thousand subscribers. Is that what I heard right? Yeah, pretty much. So I started building up the mailing list um, like mid November two thousand thirteen, and then come early January, that was right around when I hit three thousand, and I was like, okay, now it's just off to the races. And I thought, I planned it out, and I was like super strategic, like I'll write it for two months and then have a month of buffer time to like edit and do sales strategy and like totally like plowed through that. And, you know, it was, it was at the, the last day of the, of the third month, I was like, I have to ship this thing. I've been telling people this is the deadline. I got to go live. And I was still, I pulled an all-nighter to make edits to the content even up to that point. So... I greatly underestimated the amount of time that it would take to write the book, um, and all of my my uh, very very wise planning ahead of time was uh, very silly in, in uh, retrospect. <laughs> it, it ended up taking a lot longer than you thought. Yeah, way longer. Uh, and maybe take me through that whole process. So while you're writing the book, you're still posting new teardowns. Correct. You are uh, emailing people regularly. Emailing the email list? Yeah. Um, well, that was the nice thing about the teardowns is at that point I was putting out one a week, and so I was. it was never a thing where it's like sign up for updates on the book and then three months later being like, hey, remember that book that you forgot about? It's it's ready today. So I was always kind of maintaining that presence of mind um, regardless. But, um, yeah, so as far as, like, what was on my plate, it was uh, getting new teardowns out and just trying to keep, continue building the list as much as possible also, fortunately, by that point, it had led to, uh, a, I guess, especially at that point, significant amount of consulting interest. Um, so I was able to take on some projects and try to figure out. Like people were like, "Oh yeah, so you do user onboarding? Do you have like you know packages around that?" And I was like, "Well, sure, yeah, I guess." And so <laughs> it's just a lot of like talking to people and really quickly trying to figure out what is the the common need there, so I can kind of create. A more you know formal offering around that, um, which turned out to be we like the teardowns that you do. Uh, will you do one for us, but not share it? And so um, that that was a service that I could really quickly formalize and I guess turn into something uh, along the lines of a non-recurring productized consulting offering. Yeah. Um, so I was doing those and then also writing the book. So it was it was January, February, and March were a lot of long, long, long days. Yeah, and and we should have clarified during this whole time, what were you doing for work? Were you, you were a freelancer? You were working a day job? Um, when you started useronboard.com, what was your professional life like? Yeah, well, uh, interestingly, so I uh, had an uh, an apprenticeship with Rob Walling um, for three months, and that was something that ended uh, at the end of November 2013. So this was my very next project after that. Um, Interestingly, our our savings had kind of dwindled as the you know the apprenticeship uh, game is not a super lucrative one, 
Um, and it was basically something where right at the end of it, uh, our uh, car got totaled. And oh, I, I was like, well, this is terrible timing. <laughs> um, but then uh, the insurance company wound up paying out like twice as much as the, as the car was actually worth um, and basically bought us one more month of like you're before you don't have to go back to like just you know general consulting or look to find another job like I have one month to just see how far I can possibly get and then at the end of that month you know it's basically you know credit card time until I find a way to make money and fortunately from December to January that was enough to drum up interest to you know work with some pretty exciting companies on on some one-off consulting projects and things like that and at a rate that I wasn't used to charging people you know beforehand because once again you're kind of seen as an expert in that particular field and so um, I was able to do a little bit of consulting just to kind of keep things going and keep you know not fully blow, max out our credit cards but it really came down to like okay so the the the, the car insurance money was December to January and then consulting money, money bought us January to February and then it was, you know, launching at the end of March. It was like, if this doesn't go well, this this might be an interesting experience. But um, fortunately, I didn't, you know, the launch didn't go super well, but it went well enough where, you know, it wasn't like I made a hundred bucks and I had to try to figure out uh, how to borrow money from somebody or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's get into the launch then. All right. You work all night to get this thing out. You you didn't have the buffer that you were hoping for, but you get it out. You launch. What happened? Well, um, a lot of confusion, I think. I, I, uh, I really wish that I had spent a lot more time on the sales page. Uh, the packages that I had, people didn't really understand what was included and what wasn't. Um, I didn't want to anchor the value of the book by calling it a book or anchoring it low because then people would compare it to like a $14 Amazon purchase or whatever. So I called it like a training package, but then people were like, but it's but it's a book, right? Like, like basically calling it something vague to avoid anchoring low essentially just resulted in people not knowing what it was at all, which is worse. Um, and so it took me a while to figure out like what the packages should be and stuff like that. Um, so there was that issue. One thing that I really wish I had done, and uh, it's kind of like a pro tip, I really, really wish that I had started selling the book in person like halfway through writing it. Um, because that would have informed me what people's objections to buying it were. It would have informed me what people, what value people saw in it, and it also would have informed me about what the subject matter of the book should have been while there was still time to change it. Um, fortunately, the book itself is really people have found really valuable. I, I feel like I did the subject matter part right, but as far as how to just describe it in sales terms that made sense to people, I uh, I, I was woefully inadequate in. So, which interestingly was kind of the point of of the project was to just like. I'd never brought a product to market. I'd never figured out pricing. I had never built an audience. And I was like, I just want to get my rookie mistakes out of the way now so I can, you know, uh, not screw up a SaaS product that I've been working nine months on or whatever. Yeah. And and really, I mean, the, the other pressure was that you were doing this all very fast. Like, yeah. You stopped your, your apprenticeship with Rob, and then, like, this was the next thing you jumped into, and then it kind of took off. It you started building an audience really quickly. Uh, yeah, so yeah, I, mean, I was super surprised. Sorry, was that? That? Have, that must have added to the pressure a little bit too. Sure. Yeah, very much so. Um, so yeah, so there was that. One thing that I think I did do well as far as the launch is concerned was I got it out to like advanced copies to a lot of people. I was really 
very, uh, I guess, strategic, you could say, in that regard. Like, I made a list of... I probably got it... I probably put it, sent it to more than 100 people. Um, wow. Where, and, which I think... I, I assumed... It's funny, because when you're doing it for the first time, you just think that's, like, normal. And then comparing notes with other people who have self-published, where they're like, oh, I sent it to, like, 17, maybe, or something. Yeah. Um, and so, basically, I just made a list of... A, 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 like, anybody who I follow on Twitter that I don't already know who has a big audience... Yeah. Um, and basically, you know, the, the, the Venn diagram between that group and the group of people who I've really looked up to for a really long time in the design community or considered heroes in, um, you know, in, a, in product or startup uh, world, yeah, um, it made it really easy to send out a warm email that wasn't just, hey, review my book, please, and maybe tweet about it on the day that it comes out. Um, I could really, you know, come in and say specifics like, I remember this blog post that you wrote eight and a half years ago, and it's informed how I've done X, Y, and Z. Uh, you know, indirectly, it's led to me writing this book. If you want to check it out, please let me know. And like, yeah. not even necessarily linking to the book, but just reaching out to people. And yeah. then, you know, so that's awesome. And I, I noticed, for example, you have Ryan Singer on your books yep. page. Uh, I, I'm guessing that came from an advanced copy that you sent. Yeah, that's correct. Yeah, and I also reached out to him because I was doing the uh, round of interviews to include in the complete package, and I wanted him to his voice to be included there. Um, and he said he would be open to it, but he didn't want it to be behind any kind of paywall or anything. So I actually was like, uh, yeah, that's fine. So uh, we had the conversation, and then I posted it on the site, um, which is uh, an audio interview called, I think it's called Explore... Uh, uh, what is it? Exploring jobs to be done with onboarding or something like that. Oh, cool! Uh, and and that's been like a pretty popular thing, and and I think has you know been a way to kind of show people a sample of what the audio interviews inside the book are are going to be like. So, yeah. Now, can you talk a little bit about numbers? How did you do on the initial launch, and and how have you done since then? Sure. Uh, I did. I think like uh, seven thousand and change on the launch day. Um, and I also, I think I launched on a Friday, which is, like, super dumb. Oh, no, no, no. I launched on a Thursday, but I had a two-day sale to the list. It was like, that's, like, a Nathan Berry tactic of, like, have that, like, urgent count window to get people to buy. Yeah. Um, but, like, the the uh, sale ended at, like, 8 p.m. on a Friday, Pacific time. So it's, like, completely irrelevant to, like, you know, so many people wasn't... So I sent out the email, like, hey, the sale's ending in an hour, and it just went to nobody until, you know, Monday morning, buried under 30 other emails. So um, I would recommend launching midweek, especially if you're going to have a multi-day sale. Um, but, yeah, so, so, like, the launch week, I think I got... I mean, I don't even remember. I, probably around like 10 or 12k or something like that. Um, so not a huge, not like a super great return for three months worth of really, you know, busting my ass to get that out. But um, fortunately, since then, because one thing that I've also heard about self-publishing is like you have like you build up to this launch and then you just kind of assume there will be just very sporadic sales afterwards. Um, but because I'm continuing to put out teardowns and I'm really just working on I really hate this term, but just driving awareness for user onboarding as a thing outside of even user onboarding as a property of mine. Um, sales have been really good ongoing. And so I, I haven't looked it up recently, but I, I would assume I probably uh, passed the 85K mark uh, within the last week or so. Nice. And that, so that's uh, how many months since launch now? 
so April, it was like March 27th till now, so April, May, June, July, August, September, October, uh, so eight months. Awesome. So, so since then, it's, it's continued to do well. Uh, you didn't make all your money right on launch. There is hope for people that maybe don't have a perfect launch. You can still, uh, sometimes you can still have a successful product that just burns along at a, a pretty steady pace. I think so. I, I think that like if you look at some like what Brennan Dunn has done um, with with his products, where he you know he's his whole uh, ecosystem or like stair step approach, where he has that robust uh, floor or foundation of his newsletter subscribers, and then you know uh, other things that he's doing for free. And then if they want to upgrade, they can get the book. And if they want to go past that, they can go into coaching and consulting and. Uh, the product and all that stuff. Um, I, I would I would say that I'm kind of more along those lines than Nathan Barry, who seems to be a lot more launch centric, and then moves on to launching something else or yeah. relaunching something that he already had. Yeah. Well, let's back up just a little bit because I don't. Want, sure. I want you to go back to that time where you launched, okay. and you were hoping. I'm I'm assuming you were hoping for a big launch. It didn't meet your you know what you were hoping for you were you're thinking man that's not a lot of money for 3 months of work right. how did you, how did you feel in that <laughs> moment and maybe just take us through what you did how did you kind of process that uh, this idea of you know maybe feeling like ah oh, like it wasn't quite what you wanted yeah um it, it, it was kind of rough because I remember because like I literally what had been up all night the night before and I was launching at like 8 a.m. pacific um on, I guess it was a Thursday, and uh, at that point, my wife and son had both woke. I have a four-year-old, um, and so they had both gotten up, and I was like, hey, guys, come out, because I, I have a home office uh, on this property. And I was like, hey, come on, come on, and so they like threw on their robes and came out, and I was like, all right, I'm going to send the email, and I, I sent it, and I was just like, wait, you know, just waiting for the, uh, the Gumroad announcements to come rolling in about all the money we were about to make, and it was just like, bramp, bramp, bramp. Ramp. <laughs> like it just it started tailing off like right away, and uh, and I had like three tiers, and it was all the lowest tier, which was a real bummer because I thought especially the people that had been warming up through the list for so long would be you know it would have more than just a or a, a greater than normal split of people getting the highest tier, and it was all lowest tier, and I, again I think just because people didn't understand what it was, um, and so it was it was something where we kind of sat there and I was like. Look, they were right behind me on this couch, and I was just—we were—I was like, guys, you might just want to go. Like, apparently, this is this is not going to be a great celebration here. Uh, and so, yeah, it was frustrating for sure. Um, it was also something where having invested all that effort and having it come down to like, you know, that one particular moment was just the—it was at least something of a relief just to have that pressure off, where it's like, whatever I make from here, at least I can be looking at moving forward with whatever else I'm going to be doing. And, but you kind of feel depressed about that because you get you're so invested in it, and and you know it's it's kind of exhilarating just to be working on on such a tight deadline for such a big project too. Yeah, yeah. So, emotionally, that must have been so hard because there's so much that leads up to that launch. Even if you tell yourself, well, it's going to be okay, I'm not going to, you know, let it affect me too much. It almost always does because there's so much expectation of this thing is going to do well, or I hope this thing does well, and and when it doesn't meet your expectations, that, that can be hard. Uh, yeah. How, how did you kind of pull yourself up after that? 
I yeah, I think that you know, for me, I'm I'm something of an optimist, or I'm always I, I like whatever happens, I can be like, well, maybe it's good for this reason or whatever. Um, and I think in my case, it was something where I was like, fortunately, I'm not I'm not going to stop doing user onboarding anytime because at that point, you know, I was basically as soon as the book launched, all the consulting work that I've been putting off because I was so busy writing the book, I was able to take on, and so like money wasn't going to be an issue, which was a huge relief. Um, it had helped establish me, you know, in the in the marketplace, I guess, or whatever you might want to call it, as as like you know someone that's kind of in demand or whatever that might be. And I knew as I continued putting out teardowns, I would get, I would be able. To, it was a repeatable process. And yeah. so basically, you know, my sort of glass half full take on it was the launch didn't go well. The point of doing this entire project was to make you know get my rookie mistakes out with launches early. So that's kind of been accomplished. Um, and fortunately, I'm not going anywhere, and so I can continue to try to, you know, now I have a page that I can split test, and now I have a property that I can relaunch down the road or things like that. And so I think taking that mindset of, like, you know, I, I've never really been super launch-centric just because I'm very learning and iteration-centric, where I really like the idea of, like, not everything will be completely right the first time, but, like, get something out, have a repeatable process where you can continue learning and optimizing as you go. Uh, and so fortunately, you know, that was the mindset that I took on and that kind of gave me um, some hope as opposed to like, well, I'll just chalk that up as a loss and move on. Yeah. I think the other thing that you had, which is helpful, is you had uh, a bunch of experience that told you that people wanted this thing, that they were interested in onboarding, that what you were offering had value. Uh -huh. and I think sometimes people launch and they don't know whether the thing they are offering has any value, which is hard, and that makes it difficult to know if they should continue or not. But in right. your case, you already knew. You knew that people wanted this. You knew that people were interested in onboarding. You just had to figure out what was wrong with my pitch. Yeah. That, yeah, that's true. The demand was definitely there. It wasn't like, you know, I nailed the pitch, but nobody cared. So there, there was, I would agree with that. Yeah, and I, you're right. That can be another problem. <laughs> Can it like you nail the pitch, but sorry, no one really wants it. Like you can have the best launch process in the world, but if no one wants it, yeah, it's not going to work. Yeah, yeah. So that gave me some confidence for sure. Awesome. So, uh, and and what did you end up doing? What did you end up doing that kind of turned it around? Um, I went from three tiers to two. Um, I had like cutesy names for them at the beginning, like this is the time saver package and stuff like that, uh, and I got rid of that. It was like, if you just want the book, just get the book. If you want to get all this other stuff, then you can get what I called the complete package. Um, and then, yeah, so I think I think just being able to figure out how to reframe uh, how, how people were wanting to scratch their itch um, and using words that, that they use to describe it and things like that, um, was one thing that I did that was that was helpful, and an, another thing I did was I had Crazy Egg installed from day one, and you know with the scroll heat map, it, I could see like you know starting out like white hot and then blue really quickly, and huh. you know just trying to figure out how should I arrange the content so I'm you know kind of because it has like a long form sales copy right now, so you know am I starting out strong enough? Am I sustaining people's attention all the way down the page? And just kind of taking a a very loosely scientific approach to to optimizing it from there. That's a great idea, actually. That's something that people have forgotten about, I think, uh, especially Crazy Egg, because Crazy Egg's been around for a while. Mm -hmm. uh, 
But that tool can be really helpful, especially with the landing page. Yeah. Trying to figure out what what's wrong here, because that that's really the thing you you were asking on that fateful day, right? You're like, what's wrong here? What what happened? Yeah. And to at least have some idea uh, must have been helpful to say, okay, I, I here's some places I can start. Right. Yeah. Like a long a long form sales page is kind of like like a a speech or a presentation. And you, you, without Crazy Egg, you have no idea, like, a third of the people just got up and left after the first minute or whatever. Um, so having Crazy Egg in, in there was super helpful in that regard, just like, am I even getting people down far enough down the page to see the buttons that tell you how to buy it and how much it costs and stuff like that? So super helpful that way. So now that you've launched and now that you've, I mean, you have a product now that is, it sounds like grossing about 10K a month. Uh, if I did the math right, um, what t I, I'm sure you, you have other product people that are asking you questions and asking for your advice. What advice are you giving to people these days that want to start a product, that want to become known as an expert in a given field? What do you tell those people? For like self-publishing specifically? Uh, maybe any just any independent product creator or anyone that wants to be an independent product creator. Uh, it might sound cliche, but you know, spending as much face time with the with the people who you think will be buying it as possible. Um, that you know, I, that actually goes for a SaaS product or a, a you know, I, I I almost hesitate to even differentiate be, between different kinds of products because ultimately people are frustrated with their current situation in some particular way, and they might be able to envision a better way of doing it, and maybe they think that you can reliably help get them there. And maybe you have something that facilitates that transition from frustrated to more successful. And if that comes in book form or consulting form or SaaS product form or uh, a swallowable pill, like it doesn't really matter <laughs> to them. So uh, as far as being able to like basically say, you know, I want to pick this particular problem for these particular people. Their problem is now my problem. How am I going to be able to facilitate change in their life in some way um, and go from there? Then you know, really understanding. What what the surrounding context of that problem is, what they're calling it, what parts they recognize as being a problem, which parts they don't. That all you know is what I would recommend, whether you're writing a a, a book or or a mobile app or anything really. Yeah, that that is the the piece I think we often miss as creators is we love working with the technology so much that we don't do the hard work of actually being with the people. Yeah. At the end of the day, it's all about people, isn't it? Well, yeah, and it's about people, and it's also, it's like, it's not just about what your product does, but it's what your product lets people do. Like, what 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 can they do with your product? That's the important thing, not just what does your product itself do. And, you know, I, I think that it's easy for us to get caught up in thinking of the products that we create almost like as finished work, like like a musical composition. Like, we, we sat down and, and created this thing, and look at how beautiful it is. Um, but I really, I like to think of them more as like we're creating musical instruments and the, which let other people create the compositions that they want to even better um, and looking at what's the end result for them, not just what's the end result for what we've created. I love how you have all these great metaphors <laughs> for all of this. I, I, for the folks on video, uh, you, the people who are on audio won't see this, but I'm sharing a, a screen from Sam's blog this picture uh, has shown up all over the internet, uh, and I just think it's, I love this idea presented here. This, you can find this on useronboard.com. 
if, and if you search uh, user onboard and then Mario, you will also find this, this picture here. Um, so Sam, maybe just describe what you were talking about here, because it, it, it goes along the lines of what you were just describing earlier. Yeah. Um, so it is a, it's a, a formula, I guess you could say, or a visual analogy. Um, on the left is the, the runty, runty Mario, um, and he encounters the fire flower in the middle and then becomes the super fire, fireball-throwing gigantic Mario. Um, and basically, a lot of times I think that when people think of what your business makes, um, that they make the product, but really what people are buying is the experience of being uh, kick-ass with your product. Uh, but your product is just a delivery mechanism for that, and the, and the features of your product are not really the most interesting thing. It's the features of the lifestyle that your product affords. Um, and so um, people seem to kind of get get on with the uh, wording underneath it, which is people don't buy products, they buy better versions of themselves. Um, so that's essentially what it's, uh, what it's trying to communicate. And, and what are some products that you've found are doing this really well? Can you give us some examples of, of people that are presenting that vision the way you just described it? Sure. In, in my book, there's a, a, a product called, oh, what is it called? Pop? Prototyping on paper. Are you okay. familiar with that? Yeah, yeah, I am. Okay, and so like in their scenario, they show you how it works, and it's like one of those typical home pages with like you know step one, step two, step three, but it doesn't show you what you're looking at while using the product. It shows you what you're looking like while using the product. So instead of like this is you know you click this button and then you go to the screen and then you click this button and isn't that great? Like instead they say you know this is what you like. Uh, you know, this is uh, you. You write something on a piece of paper has nothing to do with the product at all, and then you take a picture of it with your camera phone. Doesn't even have to do anything with anything to do with the product. And then they're like, you draw hot spots and get to watch people, you know, navigate it like it's a like it's a, a digital prototype, but it's just something you drew. All of that is like, oh, perfect. I can see how that fits into my life through my eyes, and I can I can imagine myself doing this. Not one part of it has to do with, and this is how our interface works at all. Because that doesn't really matter. So that's one example that I think is really good. Another one that I use a lot of times, just as kind of shorthand, is like when Netflix was really DVD heavy and first coming out, and they're like, no late fees, no this, no that. Like people could really think like, oh, I can imagine myself. I, I do whatever I do on the computer. That part I don't really care about. But then I can imagine myself walking to my mailbox and getting a DVD. Wouldn't that be amazing? I don't have to go to the video store anymore. So like those are the kind of things where people realize within the grander context of my life, this is how things will be better for me as opposed to, oh, on Netflix I can click on a video and see more information about it and then click a button and add it to my queue and then I can drag and drop to resort my queue. Like, nobody cares. That's not, the, that's not what makes it Netflix amazing. Or at the time it didn't. Yeah. But. You know, it's, it, as soon as you started describing this, I started to think of what makes it just a good advertisement. And uh -huh. what came to mind was, um, do you remember the first time you saw the ad for paper? Um, but the, the paper iPad app, um, I don't know if you ever saw that, but I, I remembered that getting passed around. Uh, so paper is the iPad app that allows you to sketch, um, and the whole video is like people walking around with their iPads, stopping at the beach, sketching something, uh, in a meeting, sketching some notes, and you're just seeing over and over again people using it in their lives, and it gives you this picture, this vision of 
I could see that fitting into my life, kind of like right here. Uh-huh. Uh, a brilliant advertisement. Uh, you just it it leaves you wanting to have that product in your life. Yeah. It sounds like you're saying that you can incorporate those elements into onboarding as well. I would absolutely say I think that is what onboarding is really. I think that a lot of people mistake. Uh, onboarding as getting people set up with a product or, or getting people better at using the product, where really onboarding should be about getting people to be better at doing whatever the product helps them do. Um, so, you know, getting better at tax slayer is not something that anyone wakes up aspiring to do, but getting better at getting their taxes filed is something that, they, that it, they're very motivated to do. And so, you know, onboarding within tax slayer shouldn't be, uh, let's explain what all of these different parts of the interface do, it should be, let's just make sure that we reliably get you. I kind of have this thing like, instead of onboarding isn't getting people from point A to point B in your product, it's getting people from point A to point B in their lives. So however you can reliably get people incrementally making progress on the, in tax layers case, uh, getting taxes filed uh, trajectory is a lot more interesting than under the, you know, getting people to make progress in the understanding how to use tax layers, tax layers interface trajectory. Um, so, yeah, it maybe is zooming out a little bit for onboarding, but that's the thing that I'm most interested in. And unless if you have that context, just explaining how the interface works doesn't really get people very far. Man, this is, okay, this is starting to get me fired up a little bit. All right. We're only 10 minutes left, but we're going to let's, let's dig a little deeper here. Because, I'm happy to go a little long, too, if you want. Because the onboarding that we see is about just how to get to A to B in your app. And... Now that, that that vision you just presented is so compelling to me now. I real like people don't really people don't really care, do they? They do, do they really care about all your features? Do they really care? They really want to know like what is this going to do for me? How does this make my life easier? How, how does this take away my pain? Um, that's a really interesting concept. And how do you when you're doing consulting? How do you get people around this idea? Because part of the idea is we have to show people how to use the app. Um, mm-hmm. So is it possible to accomplish both? Or do you think it's more important to really say, you know, this is how we're getting you from A to B in your life? Well, yeah. I mean, I would say that obviously people understanding how to operate the product is is, is a requirement for, for making progress in their life. I just wouldn't mistake them understanding how to use the product as, well, well I guess we're done. Like, that's... That's, it's on you now. Um, the idea is really just in being invested, kind of like we were talking before about like whether you're consulting or writing a book or whatever. Like if you if you're just invested in in helping resolve someone's problem and getting them out of a frustrating situation and into a successful one, then that all of a sudden that's, that um, really helps put a lot of these questions in perspective. And so yeah. people reach out to me and say like, I mean, literally just the other day somebody was like, how long should my intro video be? And I was like. <laughs> Like, I think that there are some way more fundamental questions we should probably be asking than that, you know? Yeah. Um, and so, you know, or, at the, you know, just everything we go back to, like, whatever gets people further along in the in the process of doing whatever your product helps them do. But, um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, it's it's definitely, that's very much how I, how I see the world, I guess you could say. Um, but onboarding yeah. to me is a much more interesting challenge when you put it in that, in that context. Yeah, and there's even, like, uh, what I really like is when my first interaction with a product, whether it's an app or a web application or anything, when it acknowledges where I'm at as a human being. So, you know, if it was, um, you know, project management software, if the first screen 
basically describe my problem better than I could describe it, say, you know what? We know you're frustrated. We know you've got tasks in email. We know you've got this over here. Let me show you how we bring all of these things together in this software. Yep. Uh, that that acknowledgement is so powerful because now you're speaking human language um, as opposed to onboarding that's just like a user manual. It just feels like, well, you're just talking to me like I'm a, a robot or a, a consumer. Yeah. Um, but thinking on that that first step of saying, you know what, you're a human being. You've got some frustration. Let's talk about that. Yeah, exactly. And and also just getting people in, you know, engaged instead of, you know, somebody's like, all right, you know what? I'm sick of being a project manager screw up. I'm sign up for Basecamp today. Like today was their day. That's they 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 had been probably thinking about signing up for Basecamp for weeks, if not months. And today, for whatever reason, they're like, I'm gonna do it. And it, I mean, how weird would it be for Basecamp to then be like, all right, let's just talk about how to use Basecamp for the next five minutes. Yeah. You're not gonna really do anything. You're just gonna do a lot of reading, and and then hopefully you will remember everything that you need to know once you dive into the product. Which then that information will never be available again. Like how, like you know, just a total momentum killer. And so I really like the idea of people are fired up, they're motivated, they made, you know, that moment was the moment they signed up. Their attention will probably never be like it is right now. How can you really get them engaged and actually scoring quick wins as quickly as possible to get them as, as you know, successful as early as possible within the product? Um, and so that's something that I look at too, like a lot of where, a lot of the research that I did for onboarding, because there just wasn't really a lot out there when I wrote the book, was on uh, video game design because it's a, it's been around a lot longer. Um, so you know, game design theory is a little bit more evolved, and um, but a lot of a lot of overlaps with like first level design and tutorial design and things like that. And, and looking at when video games used to come, you know, like a Nintendo game where it would come with like a 130 page manual. Yeah. And like you would never read that. You're like, I would rather just go in there and be confused and have a miserable time and then never play this game again than sit down and read 130 pages about a video game. So, you know, video games becoming a lot smarter and basically saying, okay, let's make the let's make the manual interactive. So then they would have like a tutorial that was front uh, front loaded. But even then it's just like when you need to jump, press A, and when you need to do this, may, you know, press B or whatever that might be. It wasn't really fun. You were still just kind of trying to memorize things instead of actually getting in and doing things. And then finally, you know, looking at blending the tutorial into the game where you don't even realize you're playing a tutorial anymore um, is really like the ideal that you want people to have where all of a sudden they just learn by doing and there are certain things that are just kind of obvious and instead of just like pausing the game and saying, okay, this is this kind of villain and watch out for this, it's just certain attributes are really um, intuitive about that and, you know, things along those lines. That'll, that's what I really, really encourage people to apply to their product design as well. That first five minutes can be highly, highly scripted and as full of engagement as the first five minutes of a video game, for example. Yeah. You know what you said? You had, you had like this magic moment uh, a couple minutes ago where you said they've been thinking, you know, for weeks about this and this is their moment. Uh -huh. and, and I instantly thought of this interview my friend Chase Reeves did with... Uh -huh. uh, Fellow Portlander. With yet yeah, fellow Portlander, uh, he did an interview with uh, a guy that has uh, a, a, a fine dining restaurant in Seattle. Okay. And if you look up this interview, it's called the place is called Canless, and it's with Chase Reeves on the the Fizzle podcast. But this this guy talked about the restaurant experience the way you just described coming to a web application. 
he said, you know, these people have been thinking about this for months. Mm -hmm. Their moment, like they show up at the restaurant, and you, this is your chance to create an experience, and that experience could be very scripted and kind of like fake, like you know what you might get at a, a chain restaurant, uh -huh. or it could be acknowledging them as human beings and acknowledging that this is their moment right now, inviting them in to the restaurant and creating uh, a great first experience, uh, yeah. really acknowledging their humanity. Like, we, we've been waiting for you. We, we know right. you've been thinking about this. Come on in. Like, welcome. Yeah. So when you talked about that idea of, like, this is their moment. Like, they've been thinking about this forever. Something caused them to say, okay, this is the day. I'm going to sign up for this today. Yeah. And what, what's their experience like when they come? Do they feel like, oh, well, this is just like reading a, you know, Microsoft DOS manual from back in the right. 90s or something? Or is yeah. this like, wow, these people, they've been waiting for me. You know, they, they're really welcoming me in here. They've right. got a plan for, you know, how they're going to help my life. Totally agree. That, that's, that is huge for me. That the, the idea, even just as a simple thought experiment where... If you were if you were serving a customer in person, um, and then your product was swapped out in your place, would you feel like that said like your product said the same things that you would say with the same tone? Uh, and almost always that is not the case, um, especially looking at what are called blank states or null states, which is you know maybe you log in and then the dashboard is where you would see all your projects or something, and it would say you know, you have no projects or something. Like, that's almost like, <laughs> like admonishing you for not having projects yet. Like, where it's like, I just filled out three forms. Like, I just gave you my email name and password, and now I'm here and I'm, and I'm being scolded, basically. Like, yeah. you know, this is not going kicking off on the right foot. Certainly, it's not something you would say if you were standing in the website's place welcoming a new customer to your company. So, I mean, yeah, very, very much so. That I, If it can't pass the test of, like, this is even remotely the kind of human experience that we want people to have, and these are the words we use and the tone we want to use, and this is how helpful we can possibly be. Um, yeah, that's, 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 that's easy pickings, I guess you could say. Yeah, well, and even think about how you would translate that, that analogy to a restaurant. It's like someone shows up, right. and the hostess says, you have no seat. Yeah, you, have no, you haven't ordered anything. <laughs> there is no dinner for you. <laughs> <laughs> because like I have seen it on social like mobile social apps and stuff where you know the main thing is like adding people you know and like the screen will literally say like you have no friends. <laughs> it's like, oh wow, you're making me feel all warm and fuzzy inside social app. Thank you. <laughs> These are the things that we don't think about though, because we're we're not the, the human beings aren't right there. You know, like if they were in front of us and I was inviting them into my place of business, I would say, you know, welcome. I'm so glad you're here. Let me, let, let me talk to you a little bit. You know, why are you here? How'd you, oh, that's great. How was the traffic? Well, let me find you a seat. You know, there'd be all these things I would do. Right. But when it's these inhuman interfaces that you're just like, you're just programming them with your head down in a cave, we don't always think about those interactions, do we? It, it, it's also something where so many times... For whatever reason, good or bad, um, the onboarding part of the product design is not is tacked on at the very end. It's really it's not part of the onboarding. Oh, <laughs> or sorry. Um, oh, you're still okay. You're frozen. I just want to make sure you're there. 
Um, and so it's something where it's like, it's probably something that's really rushed and just kind of slapped together at the very end when something's about to ship because you're like, oh, right, it has to say something when there's nothing there or whatever. Um, and I'm a little biased, obviously, but I really like the idea of starting with what is the first thing that someone sees and before we even start talking about super advanced level, this is what the dashboard looks like when it's got six months worth of activity in it, like how do we even just get people into one week of activity? And what does it look like then? Or what does it look like after four weeks of activity? And designing it from a standpoint of it doesn't if people, you know, if one percent of the people who ever sign up are ever even going to make it six months into the product, why are we spending so much time focusing on that state as opposed to the state when 100% of the people who sign up are going to see it or 50% of the time, or 50% of the people who sign up are going to see it, so on and so forth. How can we make those experiences great as opposed to creating this gigantic feature that kind of literally doesn't exist for 99% of the people who sign up because they never even get that far? Yeah, yeah, and if you have an existing SaaS application, one of the things you can do is you can go into whatever your analytics are for in-app analytics, and you can see, you know, you can do things like filter by has created an account and then has, you know, done a certain step, and then you can see how many people, you know, they sign up on this month. By month six, how many people are still doing that? Or right. uh, what are, what's the success rate if they create, you know, three things in your app? Uh, do, do the, does usage go up after that, or does it go down? And yeah. I think what you're speaking to is that that first experience is so important. Totally. And and like looking at parallels in the in video game design, um, you'll find that the endings for video games suck a lot of the time, just because it's like it's a numbers game. Like how many people are even going to make it to the end or whatever? You know, like if you look at like Super Mario Brothers, like just the original Nintendo game. It starts off gripping, we're like, okay, you know, I'm, I'm in this new land, i got to discover all these new things, oh, there's this princess that's missing, all right, you know, this is, I'm, I'm locked into this, and then you get to the end, and it's like, oh, okay, you did it, <laughs> you know, because, like, they didn't need to spend a ton of design effort on that, because the entire experience, especially the beginning of the experience, was so strong that people were already bought in from the beginning, and if, and if it had been really weak up front, it doesn't matter how great that was, because nobody would get there, so. Yeah, yeah. That brings up a good point, actually, because um, you just talked about user onboarding, but there's also this idea of like the end state. Uh -huh. I don't know what we call that user offloading or user, <laughs> user, whatever finishing. But there, uh -huh. there is some. I mean, and maybe this all just follows under the the umbrella of uh, user experience. But it seems like user experience focuses a lot on the present state, and maybe not like the beginning, which is the onboarding phase, and then the ending, like you finished a project, what does that mean? Uh, yeah. You've successfully, you know, um, organized your life with our calendar software, what does that mean? Do you think people need to pay more attention to that? I, I, I think so, I mean, you know, on a very small level, just looking at somebody who's completed a task, even a small one, just giving them some sort of positive encouragement and being like, congratulations, you did that. Like, you know, if you're uh, Vimeo or Wistia, like, you just uploaded your first video. You're you're amazing. Like, how much nicer is that than just, like, video count equals one or whatever they might be having, you know, there. Yeah. So even just, you know, celebrating small successes, especially early on, I think could be really helpful. And then also, especially as time goes by, and especially if, you, if it's, like, B2B and you charge for the product, you know, reminding people of how successful they are because of it. So... Um, going back to like Rob Walling with Drip, that was something that was baked in from day one, which is like 
the entire point of this product is to get people to subscribe to to increase your your email list subscribe subscriber count. Yeah. And so you know weekly e emails and dashboards and everything was like this is how much your subscriber count has increased. Not this is how many emails we've sent or this is how many you know drip campaigns you've created. Like that stuff wasn't really that important. The end outcome was I want to do this because I want more people to sign up and then more people to convert. And those were really the two things that were designed around. Yeah. You know, one thing I think that could be helpful for people, just as you're talking, to imagine a person real reading your dialogues. Like, imagine there's a person standing behind you reading the dialogues that you've written in your software. <laughs> like, when, whenever you say these things, they sound so funny. Like, I, I just imagine, like, a person standing behind me going, user count equals zero. <laughs> or, or or video count equals one. You know, like that yeah. sounds so funny. You know, like have right. To, you have I like your idea of, of like just pretending you're in a restaurant and that's what the waiter says. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but that you can literally go through your your whole app and read all your dialogue boxes with that in mind. Say, you know, what? How would you feel if there was a person that was reading those to you? You know, if you had a a, a human being saying. You have no friends. You know that 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 that, 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 that sounds so foolish when you say it out loud. When you kind of personal, right? Uh, I love that that we've kind of uh, as we've been kind of yapping here. That idea is there's something about that about really going through those and saying, what kind of language are we using here? What how does this <laughs> how does this treat people with like you know even dignity? And right. Uh, yeah. But, exactly. Humiliating people who who are new to your product is probably not Plan A. Yeah. Exactly. Okay. So let's talk a little bit in the closing moments here. What What are you thinking about doing next? You know, I I think about your history now. It's a great story, actually. You know, you 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 were doing this thing with Rob, and then you found this thing here, and you built up an audience, and now you've released a product that's actually doing quite well. Um, Maybe talk to us a little bit about how you're feeling right now. Maybe what are the challenges you're feeling right now, and then kind of what are you thinking about doing next? Sure, um, I would say you know one of the biggest challenges that I'm working on is is just trying to be able to to delegate things that you know I'm I'm just getting you know more consulting work than I can take on, and there just isn't a whole lot of other there aren't a lot of other people in this space like before when I was a UX generalist and I could. I can be like, oh, no, but my friend X, Y, or Z might be available. Let me introduce you to them or whatever. I mean, it's it's even hard to do just, just, ugh, just do that kind of stuff. Um, so that's one of the top of my challenges for me. And then also just trying to figure out what the, you know, best best way to apply my time is and trying to invest more in user onboarding, uh, useronboard.com, the site itself, because that was really, I, we were talking before, I got the suggestion in that campfire chat. I was like, oh, yeah, could, you know, good idea. And I, like, literally coded up over a weekend months, almost a year ago. And so, well, almost literally a year ago. And so trying to just reinvest in that infrastructure and things like that. And um, as I alluded to, I think, briefly, the, the number one thing for me has always been really wanting to take a SaaS product to market. And so fortunately, you know, the audience for the, the user onboard list is, is pretty significant now. Um, and there's a lot of opportunity for customer development and and kind of coming up with like a beta list uh, audience and stuff like that. And so I'm in the earliest stages of prototyping and and researching uh, getting a, a SaaS product out as well. So hopefully there will be some interesting news uh, regarding that coming out in the in the nearest future. 
Yeah, that's great. You know, the the one thing that you've done well is you create you've created this content that's pretty interactive. Like you go through your slide decks, and at uh -huh. the end you get, uh, you know, prompted to subscribe to an email list. And and your list is what, what's your list now? How big is it? It's like like twelve twelve five hundred something like that. Twelve thousand five hundred. Congratulations, yep. that's awesome. Thank so, you. What you know that that's a pretty unique form of content. Do you think there's some other opportunities that people aren't seeing? Other forms of content that are kind of unique like that, that kind of have, you know, yours has a couple things ba baked in. You've got this weekly thing, you've got this interactive thing, and then you've got this built-in call to action at the end. Are there some other uh -huh. ideas around that space that you think people are missing? Like just other like alternative forms to blog posting or podcasting or whatever that yeah. might be. Yeah. Um, have you happened upon anything else? No, and I'm not even really sure how I would repeat that for myself if I wanted to pick another thing. I think that you know, once again, I I I I, I might sound like I know what I'm doing, but but that is definitely not the case. So. Um, the one thing that my mind goes to is video, that looking at, like, YouTube celebrities and the amount of eyeballs that they're getting, or just, like, some guy who remixes movie trailers and posts them to YouTube and gets just ungodly numbers of, of uh, attention uh, or user counts, like, um, views. That's the word I'm trying to, to hit on. But anyway, <laughs> um, if I were to try to do something else, I think it would be uh, very much, uh, like, public video-oriented, um, just because you can let your personality shine, people feel oh, like something like um, like Rand Fishkin's Whiteboard Fridays at Moz, I think is a great example, alternative, but it's still it's a repeating thing. It's not like a podcast or whatever. Um, that's the kind of thing that I would be looking at if I were to try another uh, form of of content generation or whatever you might want to call that. Yeah, cool, Sam. I really enjoyed this conversation. Like the I don't always get fired up like this, but the, there's something about like especially what we've been riffing on the last uh, 20 minutes here. Uh, really, really helpful. Really enjoy your company. I like hanging out with you when I'm in Portland. So thanks for being on the show. Justin, the feeling is mutual. And uh, let's tell people where we can where they can find uh, all the things you're doing. We've said useronboard.com. Is there some other places they should find you? Uh, probably, but that's really the that's if if you only remember one website, that's the one. So I would just stick with that, probably. Awesome, awesome. Thanks again for being on the show. Absolutely, it was a real pleasure. Well, I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. Uh, I kept wanting to cut this interview down. I, I did cut some pieces out just for Product People Club members. If you want to apply to Product People Club, go to productpeople.club. But I ended up keeping a lot of it in just because the conversation, especially near the end there, was so good. So I hope you enjoyed that. If you have comments, you can reach me on Twitter at M-I-Justin, the letter M, the letter I, and Justin. If you want to help the show, you can leave us a review on iTunes. Just search for product people and that you'll be able to leave a review there. Uh, it really helps the show get noticed. And that's it for this week. Thanks for joining me again. Uh, thanks for letting me share your, your car ride or your 
run or your workout or whatever you've been doing. And I will see you next week. Talk to you then. Podcast hosting is provided by Transistor.fm. They host our MP3 files, generate our RSS feed, provide us with analytics, and help us distribute the show to Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and more. If you want to start your own podcast or you want to switch to Transistor, go to Transistor.fm slash Justin and get 15% off your first year.